This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Horns of Odin. Horns of Odin is a family-run company which specialises in drinking horns and horn mugs. Every horn is sanded, polished and carved right here in our own workshop. And we line each one with a full-grade beeswax so you get a nice clean taste every time. We also have a selection of copper and brass jewellery, leatherwork and our own blacksmith, all handmade right here in the UK. We're giving an exclusive discount to listeners of the podcast. So all you've got to do is simply add the code HORNS10 now that's Horns10 to grab 10% off your entire order at checkout. So why not head over to the website www.hornsvoden.com to see the full collection of our products. We also recently hit 30,000 Instagram followers and we'll be holding a huge raffle really soon. We've had tons of amazing prizes donated and every single penny that we raise will be donated to charity. So if you just pop over to Instagram and follow us at hornsvoden.com, as soon as the charity goes live, we'll let you all know. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns Bodin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hi. And today we've got a very special guest son. Um, he's a gentleman called Luciano Pizzoli, and he's one of the people behind the Instagram page Children of Ash. Now, if you haven't had a chance to go and look at this page, please do so. They, they do a lot of really good, authentic artwork. So how are you doing, Luciano? Pretty well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean the the page you've got is is wonderful. It's it's a very good tool for somebody like me that that tries to to carve the original artwork onto onto a horn because you you take the artwork that has become eroded and destroyed and and almost invisible in some cases, and then you recreate and bring it back to life and make it much more accessible and much easier to see for for other people. Absolutely, yeah, it's, and it's uh, yeah. What you see is actually a small uh, portion of what I do. Actually, the whole Instagram and uh, the Facebook page has become a bit uh, tight for what we are doing because there is a great load of information which we can't really put down in such format because it would yeah, it doesn't really fit. It's too long. So there is a lot of background information that we're pretty much storing and we're thinking of actually of finding different ways of, uh, of uh, yeah, releasing it for people that are really interested. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure that would be of interest to a lot of people, especially, you know, people in Matthias's field that, you know, that, that really want to specialize in, in it and go sort of deep into the, the authentic artwork. Yeah, you know, one thing uh, I have always wondered a lot about is actually that um, there, there's a there's a lack of uh, art historians and and people who are trained uh, in an art background um, that are also working with the Viking Age uh, material. If you ask me, usually it's archaeologists who you know, of course, can offer a lot of interesting insight, but but not always uh, that. Uh, that art historian's background. So I'm really interested in hearing more about what you have to say on that, Luciano. Yeah, absolutely. It's like I was surprised myself how it uh, turned out because we're working with uh, Lars. I actually started uh, uh, with him 
I mean, how it got to 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 begin the whole thing was together with uh, this uh, friend of mine and is a Swedish um, rune carver and jeweler who has been studying uh, by himself, really, some specific um, ornamental, you know, structures and uh, the way they are put together. So everything that he does is actually, um, yeah, uh, constructed on on their language. So basically what he does is taking, you know, or Viking ornamental languages and bringing them back to life. So as as you would with another language, as, as if as if you took Latin and you started speaking it again and saying new things. And, you know, that's yeah. what what he has been doing specifically with a couple of uh, of uh, styles. He's got his very strong preferences towards Ringerike and Samamen. He doesn't like Ernest at all, but uh, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he has to do it too. <laughs> he calls it spaghetti, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> but it's but there is a whole understanding behind all that that we started. You know, it's like I started working. I used to be a language teacher, and I had a lot of time to spend at his shop. It was an accidental uh, occurrence. So I uh, I started drawing because I have a background in arts and I hadn't been doing much for a long time. So I started drawing stuff and he was, you know, he had a lot of Viking uh, designs and stuff. So I started drawing that and for many years, because we, we've known each other for 10 years or more. He, uh, yeah, he looked at my drawings and he said, uh, it looks really nice, but it's not Viking. <laughs> <laughs> and he kept on saying that for years until I started getting the idea and uh, and from that that moment on it started rolling and I started copying and using uh, all kinds of originals but it's like uh, he the the core of his idea is actually to to build a huge database and finding all the solutions you need for those ornaments uh, in those databases. So basically, you don't the what uh, modern Nordic designers uh, do usually is that when they come to a problem, an ornamental problem, they uh, come up with their own solution, and that that solution has got to do with. Uh, their own background, their own sense of aesthetic, etc. So they basically rail off from uh, from what the original sources are. But at that point, what we do is we actually look for a solution in the originals. So finding having some ornamental problems in design is is the point in which you know our research starts you know we are looking for certain problems because then you know that's what you were talking about Matthias about uh, the the input of a of an artist or a designer 
uh, where the archaeologists, and that's where you know Lars, the other the archaeologist I've started working with, uh, yeah, it's like got completely blown away because there were some some things that he could n not understand. And those things had to do with a sort of um, the the language and and the problems connected with the language. So if you don't have the problem, you don't understand the solution. So you see uh, uh, some solution, some sort of design choices. But as an archaeologist, you just take them as they are and don't really understand why there is, you know, they are in a certain way. Because they are, yeah, they, they are mm. fun, very, very uh, strongly connected with uh, even the philosophy of how they lived, how they thought. And it's really hard yeah. to, yeah, it's really hard to understand when you don't actually walk their walk, you know? Exactly. I think, you see, that that's um, uh, something I think uh, I should just perhaps uh, say a few words about, um, if I understand you correctly, right? We are dealing with a society that is uh, largely uh, non-textual. They um, are definitely not literate. Um, they don't have literature as such. They have runic script that they carve in, in bone, wood, um, stone, metal, and so on, right? But aside from that, Everything uh, it, that is otherwise non-verbal communication is this art form, these images that they're creating in different ways and have been creating for centuries, um, basically in, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a type of art form that, that develops in Scandinavia um, over millennia in different ways. So a lot of communication comes through these images that they put on various material right absolutely definitely yeah and also their their uh, what comes through it is also some other uh, aspects that you that they're very very hard to understand if you yeah if you don't enter the the language of ornaments as such for example one of the main uh, concepts in is uh, the concept of symmetry. Mm -hmm. um, I've been looking into the symmetry of the various styles. I mean, there's there there are always some some uh, some holes and gaps that you you know that you can always fill immediately. But as a whole, the three hundred years of of Iron Age or well, late Iron Age uh, styles uh, has a specific kind of symmetry. Which is very different, for example, from the you know British Isles uh, Celtic uh, development, um, and that's my personal opinion. But it has a lot of uh, uh, yeah connections with you know like I've I've seen it again and again and again in many 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 ornaments and styles. What what I'm getting to is that uh, symmetry. Was not um, was not a mirror symmetry. Uh, there is only one style that actually has that, which is border style. Mm. Uh, and, but before and after 
uh, mirror symmetry is something that they did not employ. Now, like you could say that Mammon style is kind of the the heights of ex of the Viking expression in its contortions and complexity, and there they they actually make it a point not to have a mirror symmetry. What they actually do, they have a sort of symmetry, but they uh, that symmetry is organic. So it's the symmetry mm. you would see in a tree. So there is a balance of uh, uh, a sort of knotwork on the right side that balances off a different knotwork on the left side. So there right. is a balance of things, but they made it a point not to make it ever the exact same. So what do you think that means, So, sort of in terms of like how these people were thinking about the world? quote-unquote philosophy, right? I think that, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I think it is a sort of philosophy. I've been thinking, uh, looking into that, and, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, contemporary parallel of Celtic art, the one developed through, you know, not the ancient Celts, but more the monks in in the British Isles, it, it has that, for for instance, has a completely uh, mirror symmetry uh, construction, and but, but like really, really solidly. So there is a big discrepancy in that sense. That that is one of the big things between Celtic and Viking art. The big difference, and I think that has got to do with the way they looked. To the world. I mean, it's like the Christianity has always had a sort of uh, big breaking point between this world and the perfection of the other world. So, uh, in the imagery that they try to, you know, uh, decorate things and they try to. Um, yeah, imagine a, a world of perfection in which the right side would be exactly the same as the left, uh, as the other side, etc. And whilst in, uh, in the Viking mythological world, it was, you know, uh, the other worlds were a continuation of this you know, this dimension, it was a, only a question of different dimension. It was not, it was not a clean cut between mm. this, uh, you know, this imperfect world that Christianity has and the perfect world on the other side. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, because uh, Christianity sort of uh, um, inherits the Hellenic philosophy, especially uh, Plato um, as 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 a, a sort of a core thinker for Christianity, and his his idea is exactly this: that that the, behind our world there is a a perfect version of this world, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and that of course that that I mean, I don't think that that many Vikings were familiar with Plato. <laughs> no, their own <laughs> Home way of thinking about the world. <laughs> yeah, it was a much more more natural kind of thing. For example, one of my the posts I put down. I mean, it's like I put it down briefly. Unfortunately, I, I would like to expand on that. Is one ornament on uh, one of these beautiful uh, mammon caskets, the kamin casket, 
in which there is a pattern made in, a, in the shape of a sort of chain with different links. And I've, uh, if you look at the original, the links are not perfect in the sense that we would experience perfect. They are all different. They are a bit larger, a bit smaller, a bit to the left, a bit to the right, you know. And it's quite interesting to actually look at these kind of things because you you get the chance to look at yourself from the from the point of view of the Vikings. So like <clears throat> it basically changed perspective completely. Because uh first of all you think, okay. Uh, why would they make such mistake? Because we see it as a mistake. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was just about to ask. Would would that have been done on purpose? Because I mean, I guess you you would just, just people would maybe would look at it and think it was a mistake, and they just did them different sizes because they just couldn't do them all the same. I, I, does that you know? Does that make sense? Like. More like you say, from I guess from a modern perspective, we would assume that they would just do all the links the same size, and and that's that. Exactly, but I mean it's like that's what I've been uh, started thinking. I mean it's like from our point, you know, from our point of view, from our culture, you know, you think, okay, uh, this is a very very precious big um, project. I mean, uh, we're talking about a casket that was designed to impress. Um, it was made for, yeah, South Scandinavian royalty uh, to be gifted to uh, some key players in the Christian world, the continental world, uh, Christian uh, communities. They wanted to blow them away. Mm. So they actually, I, I actually studied uh, all these. Uh, different parts and they require three different groups of people three different um workshops and they yeah so so basically they really put together a grand load of people so it was they went through all possible expenses to actually enter christianity with a bunch yeah so so is this are they trying to as they are gifting this to to Christian rulers to the south, are they trying to make a statement about um, what kind of identity they have? These South Scandinavian royalty. They definitely wanted to impress, yes, in some way, and they did. You know, they didn't want to come in looking. I mean, it looks from you know, like I can't you know say for sure, but it looks uh, from from the efforts that they put in that they wanted to to impress uh, the Christian club they were entering as not being inferior or or less civilized they really yeah. went out of the way so you i mean you would assume that if they've gone through that le- length to make something so beautiful i mean for anybody that's listening if you want to pull up an image of the mammoth casket whilst Luciana speaks about it, you can get an idea. It's a beautiful piece, so you would guess the mistakes would have been made. So those links must be imperfect for a reason. Well, that, that, that's an interesting bit, because the pre- pre- precision that is uh, displayed on the whole uh, piece is incredible. 
it's like uh, it's they it was I've been going through every single ornament on the Kamen casket and it looks they I think I've spotted one mistake only one clear actual technical mistake uh, that means that they had a lot of uh, very specialized eyes looking at it and making sure that there were no mistakes. So those uh, chains made out of irregular links, I thought, okay, uh, it can't be because they they were in a rush because they really took their times to, to, to make that. It couldn't be because they were unskilled, because they obviously clearly prove their skill in all the details of the thing. So there must be something else. And to do that was a sort of strange experiment. I, looked, I, made, I took um, one of these links of this connection, and of this uh, chain, and I perfected it, as we would do. And I made a chain uh, that is completely perfection, per per perfect. It has a, uh, it's, it's as we would do it. And I put the two beside each other, and uh, the, the new one is dead. It's perfect, but it has no life. It has no individuality. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So every yeah. all the links are the same. There is no movement. The, in the original, the the links have give you the idea nearly of movement, and they all have their individuality. The 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 modern version, the perfect version I made, is completely dead. So that's something that they would not have experienced, and that's what I meant when I said that you end up looking at yourself from the point of view of the Vikings, from their perspective, because they, they were not born in a world in which uh, computers make everything perfect, in, as, right. as we do, you know? So uh, they, imperfection was part of their organic living. Yeah. Matthias, you may be able to answer to this. How, how perfect would a a chain be made in the Viking Age anyway. I mean, I assume it wouldn't be of the same quality of, of what we get today, where they are all exactly the same size, all the links linking together. So is it a case of that they were just imitating what they know because the links, you know, the chains that they made weren't perfect anyway? Well, so this is the interesting thing I've been thinking about as Luciana has been talking, because, uh, you know, when it comes to certain purposes, it looks like they were perfectly capable of making uh, what we would consider uh, a perfect design, um, you know, with chain mail. You have a lot of metal rings that are the same size. And if you, if you, if you construct that wrong, and uh, I would assume, because I'm not a, a a metalsmith or anything like that, but I would assume that if you, if if there's too big of a difference between the sizes of those little uh, um, metal rings, well, then you end up with a with a weak armor. And I was thinking about the same thing when it comes to mirroring, uh, mirror symmetry, um, it, with uh, ships, right? 
I would assume that, that they wouldn't be particularly far off in terms of having the both sides of the ships mirror each other because then again you have a design flaw that that could impact uh, your navigation and and so on as far as i understand with these things so so they were they it seems like they were capable of doing this um and and they chose to do something else when it when it comes to art and that's really fascinating to me absolutely i mean it's it's certainly i think this whole thing is fascinating to me because i think anybody who's tried to imitate viking art i mean i i'm not an artist and i'll never profess to be but for any you know i've had a go i've tried doing the different styles and it is incredibly difficult it's really difficult to get the artwork right and to make it look you know look good or look anywhere near what they could do absolutely definitely i mean but uh, you know uh the the example i gave of a chain is like um yeah, it should, as Matthias says, it shouldn't be confused with the, the, the ability of doing something technically working. Because, you know, it was a chain, but it's a sort of chain. It's an ornamental chain with all kinds of bits and pieces. It had a, a different function. They were very clearly aware of what was the purpose of different things and what, how it should be developed um, so with a physical chain would probably be a lot more precise in that sense, but an ornamental chain of that sort would actually give a more dynamic idea if the ch the links were not so completely, you know, the same. So it was a case of almost trying to show it off and give the chain, give the chain some life, under almost understanding the idea of artistic license, you know, them than being able to imitate it in the artwork to give it the feel it needs. Definitely, definitely, yes. I mean, it was a lot of imitating. I mean, it's like there was a lot of philosophy, as we were saying, uh, about this, you know, uh, imitation of your environment, you know, in art. Uh, there, are, there are different things that make you you know, think in that direction. For example, the last uh, last post I made was about this yelling style uh, disc uh, brooch uh, with three beasts in. And uh, if you single the, the beasts out, they look very irregular and very out of context. They, they look very random. And... Uh, but when you put them together, they become this perfect um, assembly of knots and, and things. So that, in my view, actually sort of depicts the idea of, um, of a group making much more sense than an individual. No. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. No, that's true. And we see this also in um, uh, the Gulgupe uh, material, right? These little gold foils. You have some that are perfect uh, depictions of a man, a warrior, or a woman, or a man and woman. Um, and then you also have uh, animals. There's there's a, a really neat depiction of a bear, I think, from Upokra. Um, uh, a, a boar as well. And then um, some of the most recent finds from Bornholm in Denmark uh, uh, display these uh, ogres and all kinds of uh, fantastical supernatural beings. Absolutely, no, the tons of tons of right. I mean, it's like they, they are. Uh, there's a very big mix, misconception about styles, uh, for example. I mean, it's like the the later styles because they get. I mean, it's like what I've been. You know, realizing through the the very very deep research I'm being doing is that uh, it looks as if Viking art started in a very an extremely spiritual place, and it's you know, and that spiritual place, which which ironically doesn't have apparently so much to do with the mythology that we know about. It's very, it's very weird. It's, uh, it's because you know, like we'll, we'll talk. I, I hope we can, we get a, a chance to talk about Oseberg because that is insane. That is completely. But that's <laughs> the, the, the very, very depth of the beginning. And, and, and it's, and in that time period, the, um, the Broa style, which is my absolute favorite, is actually a very, you know, like it's the expression of the depth of their connection with the spiritual world. Uh, they didn't want to create uh, naturally looking creatures. That was not their their point, because they could, and uh, and it's and uh, you can see it in certain beasts that are made in the in in some of some of the horde from uh, yeah broa itself there's some of the beasts that have some parts of their limbs that are anatomically perfect and then their head becomes this picasso <laughs> strange things yeah absolutely i mean it's like they made these eyes gigantic because otherwise you can't even spot where the head is you know yeah no, that's true. And we see this also in um, uh, the Gulgupe uh, material, right? These little gold foils. You have some that are perfect uh, depictions of a man, a warrior, or a woman, or a man and woman. Um, and then you also have uh, animals. There's there's a, a really neat depiction of a bear, I think, from Upokra. Um, uh, a, a boar as well. And then um, some of the most recent finds from Bornholm in Denmark uh, uh, display these uh, ogres and all kinds of uh, fantastical supernatural beings of various kinds, it looks like. So, of course, archaeologists have called them Jötnar from the mythology. We don't know if that's what actually they were calling them, but, you know, that's just yeah, so fascinating. I've got to say, I find, I, I find that really fascinating because... I think to an outsider, they can look at these these beasts and almost just think that they're that they're badly done, that they 
that they just didn't have the ability to make them look like the actual animal. So it's it's really interesting to hear you say that you know that's done on purpose that they they had the ability to make them look like whatever they wanted them to, but they chose to not want them to look too real. Definitely, definitely. If you look at uh, Oseberg, I mean, we'll talk about it uh, hopefully a bit later. Of course. But this. Um, uh, yeah, Oseberg is a very particular thing. I mean, it's like uh, going uh, deep into it. Is what was was one was one of my first uh, fascinations, and that's practically yeah. I've been looking at you know researching as a sort of detective work. So since I started digging into Oseberg, a lot of other things came out. Um, but they, they, their creatures are incredible. I mean, there's one of the uh, main masters in that in the the carvings in in the in the slids that is crazy good, and a the the creatures that he depicts are you know like are are not from this world are definitely not from this world. There's some creatures that have two bodies and three heads. So they share mm-hmm. one head <laughs> and they have another each. So we have, it's like they're we- weird as, as it gets. They look like like sort of insect samurai helmets, their heads. Yeah, yeah. We, but that's so fascinating because, I mean, we see uh, tendencies like that Already back in, um, uh, you know, the the Galahus Golden Horns, right? Um, from the four hundred and fifties, I think they are around that time, right? Um, and just come to think of it, as you say that they well, they were capable of making anatomically correct depictions. Uh, you see a mix of that in in the artwork on the that gold horn right Absolutely. Uh, you have a, a three-headed giant of, of some kind you also have somebody with horns and everything mm-hmm. and then you also see uh both human and and animal figures that that are you know uh, just blended normal yeah. depictions you know? exactly yes definitely yeah. so so this is like a long-standing art style that that has very deep roots. Definitely, definitely. And it's very, very much connected with the spiritual, you know, uh, development and a spiritual awareness and a connection to the spiritual world, to the to the astral plane, if you wish. Uh, and the, the, the only, you know, the, the closest we get is, as I said, is pretty much something like Picasso in our time, in which, you know, if you look at these sketches, for example, it's like just to... To have a you know a little grasp from our world to what their art looked like. If you look at the sketches by by Picasso, when his genius is not in making children's drawings or making Michelangelo drawing, that his genius is making. Uh, in the same line, going from the you know the the line of a of a thigh uh, in the perfection that Michelangelo would have it, and then turning into a five year old along the way. Yeah. So it, yeah. it becomes you know you have a, a huge scope in one line, you know, and that's pretty much what you can see there. You know, it's like there's. 
there is much more there's much you know there there is more dimensions pictured there you know you're not looking at a picture or a depiction of an animal or i have an imagine imaginary beast uh, that comes into that legend uh, and i depict it uh, as a sort but is 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 there a possibility that there were psychedelics involved in, <laughs> in the making. I know we touched. We know we touched on this a little bit last episode, Matthias. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that, Luciano. Whether that that could be a driving force of because, like you say, with these beasts, obviously, you know, when people hallucinate, they see things that aren't of this world, and whether that plays a part in in the art style. Definitely, absolutely. That's uh, that's you know, I'm nearly convinced that there were psychedelics uh, involved in that. Definitely. But that's, you know, like to, to get a very good uh, idea of, of where the, the, the need for all that comes from, you actually need to look into something like Oseberg. Oseberg is a very special place and people just misunderstand it completely. And I've also talked with uh, um, uh, Jan Bill, who is the, the, the guy, the, the, um, the curator of the... Um, Viking Museum in Oslo. Uh, so he basically, yeah, he runs also. Then I think he's he's connected also with the excavation of this new uh, ship they found. And I had a chance to have a chat with him about Oseberg. So he he filled me in about some technical details that made a lot of sense afterwards. For example. Um, so Oseberg is a very special place. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not a style. I mean, it's it's normally classified academically as a style, but it's uh, it's a bit. If you made a parallel with uh, with music, it would be like saying that the people that took part to Woodstock were playing the same type of music. Right. Yeah, you know, it's like they it's it's a venue. It's not a style. So um, I have uh, dug into the different uh, masters because what I suspect, I mean, just we can only suspect, especially that far back on how these things were made and how, you know, how it worked with the people that were involved in making them. But there are some clues in the actual uh, uh, pieces that give you an idea that they might uh, were have worked in, uh, you know, in in schools. So they had a, a number of craftsmen that were led by a master. So that's what's generally understood. And um, well, in Oseberg, we are talking about something at least six or seven masters with their group. So uh, that made, uh, yeah, the, the ship ornaments, the, the sleds. The sleds are very, very particular because, uh, first of all, what I originally thought was that these, uh, all these objects were made for the funeral, but they were not. They show uh, signs of wear and tear. And they, yeah, they did tests, andro- like dendrological tests that, uh, uh, yeah, showed that they were at, at least a few decades old. 
Um, and plus what you see is like they have something like I think four or five five sleds I think and uh, but uh, there is something particular about these sleds that are all nearly all are ornated um, but they don't um, they, they are uh, assembled by uh, putting together the best of different sleds so uh, they don't match so they have the top where you would sit that doesn't match the runners that also ornated. So there are different schools doing that. So we're talking about not five sleds, possibly at least ten. So, and, uh, well, I mean, you need to talk about who they were made for. I mean, the, the Oseberg... Um, a burial was made for these two ladies. Uh, one, I mean, they've tested them several several times, and they seem to be, uh, yeah, around. There was an older lady, uh, around eighty years and old, and a younger one, about fifty years old. And they, so, uh, th and. They were very particular people. Uh, they probably it's very very hard to overestimate them in their importance. Um, originally, when they made the excavation, they thought that these women were uh, that this older woman was uh, Queen Oza, so the 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 mother or the grandmother. I don't remember exactly, but co connected to the first king of Norway. Yeah, that's a typical for the time too and you know archaeologists still do this like oh we have a saga name here so let's connect that to this uh, particular person we it's find a, somewhere right? but also it, it, ha <laughs> it has to do add to a political thing going on because yeah. norway was uh, getting you know got independence just just about the time that they found that ship so they needed to you know underline their own heritage and things exactly just despite the fact that that area seems to have been you know ruled by a danish king through most of the viking age <laughs> exactly exactly that, yeah that's so, part of that situation yeah so they needed to you know eradicate themselves from there so they actually pushed for these women to be uh, this queen which uh, later turned out to be impossible because it was you know there was a chronological discrepancy that couldn't be bridged really yeah is it, it is the situation still that uh one of them is believed to be from the middle east uh, and is that the older absolute one? yeah the 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 younger one the 50 year old lady was uh, the, they made a dna test and they managed to figure out that they uh, from her mother's side uh, apparently she had uh, uh DNA strengths that are uh, that are only found in uh, Iran. Is there any ex explanation as to why she would be there? Would that be a case of she's taken as a slave and then she's lived with the the elder person and then when she's died she's then been killed? You know, to go with her into the afterlife, or is there no sort of explanation as to why? It is possible, but it but you know, it's like the thing is that she was clad in all kinds of wonderful stuff and she i mean it <laughs> looks you know it could have been somebody that was married into 
into Viking and into royal. Uh, so it's it's hard to say. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, to 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 speak, you know, to be totally honest, it's hard to tell. But uh, I wouldn't underestimate the possibility that this person was of royal descent herself. Yeah, it's just it's just with them being with there being two of them. It seems a bit of a coincidence that they both would have died at the same time to be buried. Or is that? Something that's normal. That I mean, uh, oh, it's it's really hard to tell. I mean, it's like the coincidence of of them dying at the same time would be very, very, you know, uh, you know, it's like it sounds like something that is made to by fate to uh, to mess us up. But um, what, uh, yeah, what might have happened? Yeah, there are different possibilities. Um, they say that the um, the older lady was dying, uh, you know, died of something like cancer, but that the younger one might have died of the same as well. Or I don't I don't remember correctly. I mean, I don't want to 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 say something that is completely off. But the the older one was was dying of something, and the uh, the younger one, I I kind of remember that was um, yeah that had something like cancer. So presumably the, the the preparation for the older one who might have been a, a very important high priestess was going to be a big a big trip to the other side. It was like they were going out of their way to make this very big thing and the younger one might have known that her time was kind of uh, very, you know, close to mm-hmm. the end. So my well, the, mm-hmm. the situation is also that I mean there are multiple theories when it comes to the Osebeck ship, and and we're constantly finding out new things. And uh, I I am sure that I'm not even up to date on on all the new uh, realizations that the, that the archaeologists have had with their anal- analysis of of uh, different uh, parts of the ship. Um, what. Luciano, do you know what the what the status is on this theory that it half of the ship was actually stood uncovered um, for something like six months? Is that still what the scholars assume? Or that's what that's what I've heard, I've heard. That's the last thing I I've heard. Yes, definitely. But that's why I also originally assumed that the all that those those incredible ornament incredibly ornamented objects like were made for the occasion but it turned out not yeah. to be the case so that was uh, quite interesting but just for for our listen, listeners to, just to fill you in it so so a, a theory about the Osebeck ship is that only half of it was covered for a, i think a period of about 6 months whereas the other one was it was outside of the the burial mound and so it kind of looked like it was basically sailing into the underworld and um this is a funeral drama right we're we're dealing with a spectacle an event that was put on for people to see for for some reason or other right aside from that you know uh, we also know from other uh, burial contexts in uh, pre-Christian Northern Europe and Scandinavia, but also the British Isles, Sutton Hoo might be an example of this too, yeah. that, you know, 
uh, burials have an afterlife. It's not like you just close the burial mound or or the grave or anything and then just leave it there. No, I mean in some cases we we can see dead uh, like examples of people going in and hanging out with the dead, like in in chamber graves, for instance, in in the Viking Age in Scandinavia, like people um, and these are usually women. They're 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 seated um in their grave their 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 dead body has been tied up or in some way or uh, arranged as sitting in a chair yeah and then you as i guess an uh descendant or 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 whatever you can go inside and you can sit there and you can hang out with that dead person right, right. this well. is something that happened right so i mean those those are also possibilities in 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 terms of like finding a solution to uh, this discrepancy uh, between these two uh, women in the Osebeck shit. Like, um, she could have been put in there uh, later. I don't know if people have analyzed this and have a good sense well, of it yet. But the thing is that they found all kind of bits and pieces of the. You know, the 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 problem is that the scene of the crime has been disturbed because the ship is, was was yeah. uh, was robbed like around a hundred years later, and they know and they know of that. Because they found in the site, they they actually found the spades uh, mm. made of wood, so they know that they're hundred years younger. So they actually, and these people seem to have they know exactly where they broke into the place, and they probably because they found the 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 two bodies not exactly where they were supposed to be. They were dragged along the ditch. You know, it's, they were like what what looks likely because these, you know, the the, the whole place reeks of uh, mojo, you know, because yeah. it was it. No, I mean seriously, looking into the the whole uh, ornamental stuff. These, you know, the, the whole ornamental uh, oeuvre, all the stuff that they had, was created for. Um, ritual purposes. These people were extremely important, and they were very high in the in the spiritual uh, hierarchy. If they, yeah. if not the highest, uh, it was, it's it's amazing. I mean, so you can actually see it in in the type of um, of ornaments that they actually put together. It's but when they uh, when the the grave was robbed, they. They dragged these bodies out of the burial chamber. Um, they are just strewn uh, on the way out. So it, presumably, after a hundred years, the bodies were kind of falling to bits. But they were not, you know, <laughs> they were not so brittle as to release from the jewelry immediately so they must have been dragged and shaked to you know to to actually get all the the valuables out of them yeah because that's you know we must assume that there was these people might have been decked out in gold in some way or another right very probably yes that's that that's it, it makes it makes me wonder you know there's some amazing items that were found there so what was the real sort of hard what we, what we, you know what was taken they must, must there must have been, have been some blink, abs- yeah <laughs> there must <laughs> be some absolutely stunning pieces in there that we, you know we're probably never going to know never going to be be found absolutely yeah. 
definitely. That was completely, you know, it's like, it's it's crazy. I mean, you can see it from the, you know, from the reconstruction of the Oseberg uh, uh, tapestry that, you know, that's there, you know, and also the, the, the engraved... Uh, the sleds and uh, and the carts. There was a lot of playing going on there. Definitely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Just just to go back to the the whole subject of of art. Right? So, as modern human beings, I think our uh, perception of what good art is is very uh, much informed by uh, uh, the the naturalism that that. Uh, comes in in the renaissance and is even reinforced in what we call the enlightenment age right uh that's that's sort of the ideal that is favored and has more or less persisted since um the the late 1300s uh, 1400s right um Mm -hmm. and and that's definitely not uh what these people would have considered good art i guess that's that's not what they were uh, well maybe they would have you know recognized oh that's a nice that's a nice semblance of reality that we see right there but that's not what they were interested in right no no they were interested in something fundamentally different right definitely i mean the 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 early style the like the oseberg uh, period i mean it's like the late yeah the early 800s um that was a very spiritual period, but it started way earlier. And what I've noticed through the research is that the the aesthetics changed throughout the 300 years. In the early times, they were much more interested in the spiritual value and the expression of worlds that were not uh, this one, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, they developed uh, in a more towards a more naturalistic uh, depiction of imagery, uh, especially as they in, got in touch with Christianity. Yeah, and uh, so about their middle point, they are you know you've got uh, of. Uh, Viking art is like you could say around the year thousand ish, yeah, maybe a little earlier. You you get uh, the yeah the height of Viking art in Mo in the Maman style is a blend of the two. There is still a lot of imagery that is connected to the to the earlier. Uh, forms, but it's actually already lost all that uh, abstractness, and it's become a m- much more uh, aesthetic, uh, and uh, and it actually goes all the way till the end of Viking art in the Ernest style. The Ernest style, which is the last of the Viking styles, which turns into, you know, it's like basically blends completely after into uh, yeah the the romantic uh, continental uh, shapes um, is much more uh, yeah aesthetically oriented it's it has a much lesser or um, spiritual value in that mm, sense yeah spiritual in the sense of animistically spiritual 
Yeah, and that I mean, uh, we also, I guess, uh, personally at least, I, I know the Ernest style uh, from you know uh, wood carvings on um, the uh, state churches. Church, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a, is a good example. So, so it all it it's, I guess in many ways we can say it 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 is a Christian Nordic art form. Definitely, definitely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, also, the previous uh, f- uh, style of Ingerich is also basically based on yeah on Christian. I mean, there is a lot of uh, Scandinavian imagery that is. That it's you know the connection between uh, the Scandinavian point of view, the, the 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 paganistic point of view in Christianity is much more blended than we believe. It's really hard for us to understand how they made them uh, combine. And to us, is like you are either of one religion or you are of another religion so you can have a conversion at a certain point you become something else but i think that from what i see in in the in the viking style that was much more complex absolutely yeah no um yelling as as a complex uh royal complex a palace site or whatever you want to call it right in uh, in central southern Jutland, tied to the uh, the dynasty of Harold Bluetooth, the the king responsible for uh, Christianizing Denmark, at least um, he. Um, but what we have uh, just for for our listeners, what we have to begin with is a burial mound constructed presumably for Gorm, his father. Um, that's that's very hotly debated whether or not it actually it actually was him, but. Um, but he was put in there. He was he was not Christian in this burial mound, and and that burial mound sits at the center of one of the largest uh, ship settings in stone that we know of in Scandinavia. There's one I believe that is larger and older, but uh, but but it's a very very big one, and it faces or it, it's directed north south, um, which might have implication for what they believed here. Basically, some have theorized that this is uh, sort of a symbolic representation of sailing to the land of the dead up north. Um, and then we have the Christianization. And we, uh, next to that burial mound uh, in that stone ship setting, is then placed a church. And uh, Harold Bluetooth's famous stone, uh, the so-called birth certificate of Denmark, it basically says, I Christianized the Danes and also conquered Norway and a bunch of other stuff, right? And that, that uh, artistically, that runestone is really interesting too because it mixes the uh, runic medium with the illuminated manuscript medium. It's, uh, the, the way that the runes are organized, it looks like they're in a sort of mm-hmm. like a medieval book, um, which is really fascinating. And then he also, uh, it looks like he built another mound, the so-called South Mound, on the uh, southern point of that stone ship setting, almost as if to anchor it, to make sure that it doesn't sail with the, <laughs> with the soul of his father <laughs> to 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 the pagan land of the dead. And we also have a translatio, so the where the body of that person, presumably that was in that uh, mound, um, is taken and uh, put under the floorboards of the church. Now that's again 
debated whether or not that's the same person, but somebody is buried underneath the floorboards of the church. So what we have here is um, this complete uh, 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 fusion of pre-Christian and Christian um, as, as sort of a, a royal maneuver to make sure, uh, if, if all of these things add up at least, a royal maneuver by Harold Bluetooth to make sure that his father doesn't go to mm-hmm. hell, basically, in a Christian sense. Uh, but he is Christianized after death, and, and Harold then builds this monument to Christianity, basically, that utilizes so many components of the pre-Christian culture to signify that, that it's okay, so to speak, and how we yeah, Christian. exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's something that is been you know like i've uh, before uh, halfway my interest in viking uh, art and uh, culture in general i i went back to italy for a few years i was i, I was i researched for 3 years the norman invasion uh, of southern italy and they well, I mean, from the the the, the establishment of the and the, of uh, the colony in Normandy uh, of the Vikings, and thus the transformation into uh, Normans, who then moved to southern Italy, there was a very short period, and their management of religion was very interesting because what they the first thing that they did when in the dukedom of normandy is that they eliminated the bishops and they put their own which was a bit frowned mm. upon by the by the pope because because they they saw that it was a very <laughs> you know it was a very profitable business these bishoprics had a lot of uh, you know income so, you know, the, the, the most obvious thing for them to do is to replace them with their own. I guess it probably has political um, power as well. I guess if you control the church, you're also going to have a lot of sway in controlling the people. Exactly, absolutely. They, they kept on, uh, you know, they used that a lot. I mean, that, that from that period, there was also this, this huge dispute between the German emperor and or the... The Holy Roman Emperor and and the Pope about this bishoprics and uh, you know and who was to appoint them because it amounted to a gigantic um, you know part of power and wealth. Uh, but what the the Pope fought uh, against with this uh, Holy Roman Emperor, he allowed in uh, uh, next door with the Normans. Because politically, he couldn't be fighting both sides. So this, you know, this religious situation was a bit, uh, yeah, a bit complex. Uh, uh, the Norman king, uh, south in southern Italy, uh, managed different religions. He didn't go to the Crusades because part of his uh, subjects, a good part, was Muslim. So. It was uh, the one of the most beautiful cathedrals in Sicily, uh, Monreale, in Pal- outside Palermo, is uh, was mostly built by Muslims, and it has the a, the lot of uh, you know Christian splendor. 
in him. So it's it, the religion was a bit more complex and more you know, things were happening in a parallel way than we see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our 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 concepts of religion today have been formed again just like the art from from like a 500 year period that that begins with uh the the protestant break from uh, from catholicism and then turns into religious wars and uh, religious migrations to where i'm at here in america right so many communities here have been established by by people fleeing um uh, religious persecution, but also simply just looking for the Holy Land uh, somewhere out west in different ways, and um, and uh, yeah, that was an, that was a very different scenario uh, back in in the medieval period. I mean, of course, we go back and forth on uh, you know religious persecution and genocides and crusades and so on. Uh, certain Christian sects are, of course, also persecuted by 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 the uh, um, the the pope in rome um the cathar mm -hmm. for instance but uh but yeah in and it really also depends on the local rulers what what are their perspective on these things the normans are a really interesting example because they they retain a multicultural and multi-religious um um kingdom basically in in in, in that region so so that's that's uh, really fascinating too. Yeah. So so I mean, so that gives a very clear idea of of how flexible this idea of of, of religion was. So so when you examine uh, Scandinavian context, it becomes a bit more, you know, it's a bit more complicated. Uh, to I mean, I, originally when I thought when I dove into the the arts of of the early styles, I thought I would find a lot of connections with the mythology that we know of in, in you know, the, the Thors and, uh, you know, the Valhalla and uh, Valkyries and a lot. And I found pretty much nothing of that. There was a lot of stuff that came from other spiritual worlds that we know practically nothing at all of. And uh, as we were saying in this Oseberg thing, there's like the, what's 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 presumably happened. Why we've got all these depictions of you know in many different styles. Uh, it probably comes from the fact that these two religious ladies actually collected art. They actually had it uh, had it made specifically for them, and I say that because I I am actually I started a sort of uh, investigation of the styles that are in the sleds and the cart and the ship, and they trace back to different parts of Scandinavia, even the bed uh, posts etc. Uh -huh. Yes, it's like the the archaeologist that uh, that wrote a, a gigantic volume of, on a book on on the Oseberg excavation had had very interesting insights but you know um Aro Akon Schettelig um um but uh, he had a bit of a naive view on certain things for example that the masters that worked at these uh, uh, different objects were uh, works uh, by themselves 
nearly, you know, like uh, th there was one, you know, like Renaissance artist, but which Renaissance artists didn't work by themselves either. So it was like, yeah, so it, you know, it's a bit of a, a outdated, romanticized idea. Yeah, M Michelangelo is a it's a workshop, basically. You know, exactly, exactly. And they, uh, it's interesting, like, if you look into the depth of these ornaments, you actually can find some, uh, some clues to what, what actually happened and how they worked. For example, then, uh, I think it's uh, sled number four, which is a very beautifully uh, ornated sled, actually the runners of it. The, the, um, the ornament is divided in ovals, which have all beasts going from one to the other. And they have a certain kind of pattern uh, to them, so that the beasts um, have a central body, and the, uh, yeah, the heads, so the neck retorts and bites into the body. In one of the, so it's, it's a recurring theme, and in, in one of these uh, ovals, uh, the beast doesn't have a head. <laughs> so it misses the actual head. There is the, everything that leads to it, but the head is, uh, yeah, they missed, missed out on it, which makes me think, it's an hypothesis, but it's as a designer, uh, if you make something yourself, you can make a lot of mistakes, but you don't miss the head. You know, it's our, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> so it was a complex uh, ornament, but you know, if you, uh, you know, you you make obviously in a very complex work, you make you you can make a lot of mistakes and this and that and leave out a foot or something, a claw, whatever. But the central points you have very clear as a designer. And there, they obviously, there was the space for the, you know, there, there is the, the turn of the neck, but the head is not there. So there's no eye, there's no mouth that bites into the body. So it, it looks as if it was, had been, you know, the, the design had been scratched onto the surface of the, 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 uh, the wood. And then somebody that had to actually work it out misunderstood the design and uh, missed out on a head. <laughs> you know, it's, it's those kind of things that you... So, I mean, one thing that I'm really interested in is do we know how they actually did the designs? Not in a sense of physically carving them, but how, I guess, how they drew them on to onto the wood or onto the surface i guess you know they didn't have the luxury of, of a notepad and a pencil where they could just go over the designs over and over and over until they got one that they liked and then you know then they could put that onto the you know onto the object it seems it seems incredible that you have these such complex designs that I, I, my mind boggles is that they just drew it on there in one go and were happy with it and that was it it's you know do we know how how they came about and, and got the final design whether it was practiced before or whether they were just masters at filling 
a space that they had. Um, yeah, well, the, the space that they had is a very is a key word in this department, especially in the early styles. The the the, the partitions in which the designs are made are crucial. You actually, you know, you can. Uh, modern designers have often uh, miss this concept that uh, the shape in which the designs are made and how they articulate with the other the other partitions around them is a very important part of the design and i think that kind of uh gives a sort of rhythm to the construction of the designs so you kind of break it down in smaller portions uh, that become uh, more manageable but obviously yes i think that i mean i think it's a bit you know a sterile uh, opinion but uh, what i can uh, suppose from what i've been uh, researching is that yeah that they actually had the experience for that and they scratched it onto the surface of the wood yeah that's that's what i was thinking to scratching or you know you could also use coal um you know the end of a a, a stick basically that that's been burnt and then uh you know drawing something there but you know uh, it, this is what I something that I've seen uh, several of the Danish, uh, especially Danish tattoo artists that do Viking style tattoos. They have sort of a tradition of going to uh, different places in in uh, the Polynesian area, um, you know, and and to 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 sort of um, uh, look at like what are the traditional styles there and so on. Of course, others do this too, but it, it seems like it's sort of, it's become like a standard thing for Danish tattoo artists to to, to go investigate uh, as they try to get closer to what m might have happened in tattooing, if tattooing even happened in Scandinavia. And I was wondering if, if, um, if there's any precedent for uh, uh, artists uh, and people who have been working with uh, Viking Age wood carving for instance um it, in the same way to, to look at what do they do in uh, uh, that whole um uh, pacific area because i mean there's there's gotta in so many ways that the the, the the cultural um commonalities or similarities um we're talking about maritime cultures um that that you know in in terms of um uh, societal setup, social settings, and so on, seem very similar to what Scandinavia would have been uh, back in pre-Christian times, um, maritime, uh, clan-based, um, and so on and so forth. So, do do you know any of anything in that regard, like of people? Well, looking uh, to yes. I mean, it's like well, uh, I started uh, tattooing in a tattoo shop that was full, you know, of of uh, artists that did Nordic uh, art um, because I uh, I learned Viking art from this rune carver. I had an, a, a very extreme uh, purist uh, look on things, and I really, really don't like modern uh, inventions connected to 
uh, Viking art. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, you know, blend, blends and, uh, you know, uh, contaminations are kind of interesting in a way. And I was kind of, it was funny to see that, yeah, I saw in Nordic tattoo designers some blends with Polynesian designs and stuff. And then I looked back, I started researching, and I looked into Oseberg. And in the wood carvings, you actually see certain patterns of wood um, ornamentations that look like the, the shark teeth and all kinds of different patterns mm. that are extremely Polynesian looking. So they actually invented something, uh, so to speak, but they actually didn't invent because they, it was actually there. They actually did uh, ornaments that looked a lot like Polynesian things. Uh, through my research, from what I know, I do, yes, contrary to my um, interests, I don't believe that Vikings tattooed. Mm, yeah. Um, I think that it's a very far-fetched uh, idea. We have much more silence than we have words for it. You should see my latest video on it that I put on YouTube. I'm, I'm actually discussing all the, um, uh, the different uh, possibilities Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. Um, Damn it. I would, uh, yeah, yeah. I would like to see it before <laughs> so we could have talked about it. But I, I, I heard your, uh, your talk with uh, Sean Perry about it. And, you know, obviously the, uh, the, the, the data that we do have is connected mostly with uh, Ibn Fadlan and, the, and his uh, description of what he saw is, you know, very, very debated because the translation will make a, a world of difference, actually. You know, it's... He talks about apparently depictions. He doesn't really, really say tattoo uh, because yeah, they didn't. Yeah. So it's really hard to tell what he actually saw. But what I contest is actually something that I've learned from uh, looking at the sources in in southern Italy. Because in southern Italy, about the Normans, there's a lot of uh, uh, chroniclers that tell a lot of stories uh, unlike what we got about the vikings unfortunately we've got a lot less but which makes it also a lot more mysterious and interesting in that sense yeah that's that's um that's both a curse and a blessing you know exa <laughs> exactly exactly but what they had they did have these chroniclers uh is what they all had in common is that they had an agenda yeah they had a plan uh, for uh, the way that they uh, presented their reality. Um, so uh, what uh, the first thing I did when I heard about this thing, you know, like the description by Ibn Fadlan, is I read that passage, and then I went on reading his own uh, account of uh, his travels. And he takes a lot of liberties in imagination and, and, and description of things that his patron, 
that was the caliph of uh, Baghdad, would never be able to confirm. Yeah, no, it's his uh, and uh, his 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 descriptions are very tendentious. He uh, he is very focused on the different peoples that he encounters. He's very focused on how they comply with Islamic law, basically. Exactly. Like, uh, um, and and that has uh, things to do with like. Uh, you know what kind of sex do they practice, and uh, how cleanly uh, are they, and all of these things. Like, um, so, so, so no, that that's true. That there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, criticism <laughs> to be to be made of uh, of his uh, of his account. Yeah, but also the fact that he actually takes advantage of the fact that nobody can confirm what he's saying. So you know he's you know like he. <laughs> He has a budget that he gets from the from the from his patron in Baghdad, so he needs to make it also interesting. But the interesting thing, though, is with his account of these supposed Vikings, everything he actually says otherwise lines up with what we can confirm from other sources that he could never have read. Um, like Scandinavian sources or um, or Western European sources. And of course, also archaeology. I mean, his his account of the chieftain's burial, for instance, was mm-hmm. very, very close yeah. to what we see in in the material uh, remnants from the Viking Age, um, which is which is really fascinating in and of itself. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, so my main argument is actually like, if we can see that he otherwise uh, says things that are plausible and acceptable based off of a comparison with other sources, uh, then why, why shouldn't we also assume that he's probably correct in, in them having some kind of markings on their body? That's sort of, but that is what I call sort of a, um, uh, a banal argument. Yeah, but the problem, the, the problem is that he also, in other parts of this, his travels, he talks about meeting a five-meter-tall giant which is, he actually says that he talks to people and he actually makes, you know, seeks, her, hears about this five meter tall giant and he goes and meets this giant. Yeah, but that's that's typical medieval stuff, though. You know, <laughs> like they all they all do that. <laughs> you know exactly, but you know that makes it a bit. You know, yeah, but you know, think about it. Um, I mean, so when it comes to medieval literature, if we wanna, um, if we wanna. Uh, distrust medieval literature based off of those kinds of things, right? We would have to also um, uh, say, well, we can't trust uh, the Vinland sagas that talk about the Vikings going to uh, North America because in them you have uh, unipeds, you know, these, uh, these these creatures with just one foot that show up, uh, you know. And that's, that's a standard sort of like medieval uh, situation. It's the same with uh, Adam of Bremen when he talks about the temple in Uppsala in Sweden. Uh, like right after that, we go to centaurs and, and dark heads and I don't know what in, in Finland. <laughs> exactly. So, so this, the, this literature always has like these fantastical elements and it's always uh, a veritable minefield to... To yeah. figure out what is what is correct and what is not, um, but um, but no seriously, go go watch the video that I made on it, uh, my YouTube channel, because uh, there are some other interesting sources. Like for instance, apparently in Northumbria in seven eighty five or eighty seven, 
um, yeah, 787. So three years before, uh, not three, uh, six years before the attack on Lindisfarne, mm-hmm. the ecclesiastical count, uh, council um, says uh, that there's a difference between uh, Christian and heathen tattoos. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's just like such a fascinating uh, source. Um, of course, we can't say that that has anything to do with Scandinavians because it's Northern England mm-hmm. where uh, Dan is sitting. Uh, but nonetheless, exactly. it, it's just a, a fascinating account of, of a, a, a tattooing in England, apparently. And um, there are several, there are plenty of sources that have to do with the British Isles in general when it comes to tattooing. And... You know, if we follow the typical way that uh, uh, theories are established on on the Viking Age based off of this very eclectic source material that we have available as scholars, um, you know, uh, uh, saying that we trust the account, for instance, of, uh, of Adam of Bremen talking about the uh, temple at Uppsala, um, is, uh, is just as reasonable as saying that we... Um, trust even Fadlan's account on tattooing, mm-hmm. and uh, especially compared with you know uh, material from the British Isles that suggests that tattooing was happening at the time, um, like all, all this stuff coming together, then throwing in a couple of mentions from uh, from the mythology. For instance, stanza one hundred and forty four in Halvamal that talks about uh, Rista, um, which is usually you know rune carving. But could also be applied to tattooing. I would, I would argue, right? Like so. What I'm, what I'm basically getting at is that um, the material is is uh, is iffy, and we can get a lot of things out of the material that doesn't necessarily add up to the reality of the Viking Age. Um, but to, to simply like discount him Fadlan because he seems iffy. Is is not enough, in my opinion. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not discounting. I mean, uh, Ibn Fadlan. I mean, it's like I'm. I'm. I'm trying to look at his uh, words in the context of you know his agenda. You know. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, I mean, it's like it would be stupid to actually, di- you know, completely discard his point of view because he may uh, you know, met a five meter tall giant in his accounts. But on the other hand. Thinking that everything else is exactly as it is is a bit, you know, is a bit dodgy in any court of law. It would be yeah. we- kind of weird, you know. Uh, so what, you know, like I, I read an account of, for example, the the king of uh, Roger II of uh, Sicily, that he actually had a uh, a sort of book on geography made. Uh, and uh, with the book went a sort of two meters uh, diameter uh, map of the world. So it was like five centimeters thick and made of silver, uh, based on the accounts of people uh, that came from all over the kingdom and met him. And you can see that the accounts go wilder and wilder as far, you know, the further away they are from from the base of Sicily and also the shape of the lands go wilder and weirder yeah. so uh, it it makes sense that yes that there is a sort of distortion you're talking about you know yeah. especially 
So uh, this man had to come back to Baghdad with a very, very interesting story. Probably this, you know, this burial uh, was spectacular enough as it was, you know, to actually account it nearly <laughs> literally. So you need, didn't need to add anything. But it's, the danger is how, you know, how do the details in the end, you know, it's like one thing is to get the general idea, okay, like the, he's seen something, it makes sense with certain accounts we have some from elsewhere, but saying, you know, taking everything as, you know, I found also, um, for example, the connection, you know, the, what, what he describes as the their uh, dealings with their hygiene and washing and spitting into a bowl and mm -hmm. passing it on doesn't really add up, you know, to the idea that you have of very well-groomed people in Scandinavia with all the bits and pieces, you know, like spitting and then recycling the same water. But I mean, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit of a complicated, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a lot of factors working at the same yeah. time. The man had an agenda. He saw things that he uh, didn't understand completely. Um, also, these people were also completely out of their own context in Scandinavia. I mean, so, soldier, you, you know, soldiers on the frontier of a war will act in a very different manner as they, as they uh, do at home. So yeah, no, that's 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 one of the points I always give to my students and all of this. For instance, with the cleanliness and also like how they're just like apparently having group sex with slaves and all that stuff. Um, I'm like, yeah, this is a this looks like a, a like a very like a male like kind of bro society that we're dealing with right here. Uh, this is not back home in Scandinavia, which would uh, account for the lack of hygiene. We all know what happens if like uh, five dudes, they live in the same apartment, right? You don't, you don't ever want to go in there unless you actually belong there. <laughs> and to, to me, it sounds like a, a bunch of men that have been allowed to go on a stag do. Exactly. Um, away for a weekend and away from the wives. And yeah. they act completely different to what they would in front of their, their significant others or their family. Exactly. So, so I mean, there, there are many levels in which, uh, if, for instance, we assume that he is correct on the tattooing, there are many levels in which that could actually be taken as sort of an anomaly uh, compared to what happens in Scandinavia. It could be um, something that has to do with like this male uh, society in and of itself as, as something special. It could be something that has to do with um, uh, Scandinavians abroad having picked up the uh, tradition from other peoples around. Uh, like there are multiple ways that we can, uh, we can explain it as something else and actually tradition of tattooing in Scandinavia. But one one thing I find really fascinating, though, or interesting about this is that when he describes them, and in that context of him describing them being possibly tattooed, he is very accurate. Otherwise, he says they they carry Frankish swords, which we know that the Scandinavians did because the Franks made better swords contrary to what we know from shows like viking and all that stuff but, um and and he also describes um the general the, the way that they look um axes uh, uh, knives um 
there's a there's a something iffy about the uh, the dress. So he does not describe what would be the typical tunic of the uh, 900s of Scandinavia. Again, Frankish dress that has been adapted to Scandinavian context. He describes something that leaves uh, something that sounds more like the the whatever rags they wear in Braveheart. Um, <laughs> like these, these the, the, the proto uh, kilt stuff uh, where they leave one arm free um, but that again is not in, in, impossible that they, that they could have been wearing something like that when you saw him I don't I don't know but yeah you know, I mean it's it's a fascinating discussion in and of yeah, itself exactly. because there's so many different ways you can go with it right absolutely and, and it, it comes down to how much do I actually trust this particular source in in terms of um, all the other crazy stuff that he says <laughs> but i find it also a bit of a you know it's like yeah i mean uh, to me i put it at rest in the idea that it might happen have happened in certain border uh, situations you know fringe areas of the you know uh, viking society um, but uh, you know as a whole uh, i think there would have been at least some more references in uh, in the imaginary situations you know like uh, the sagas the stories the etc there would have been some reference to something that is so um so important you know it's like also something pretty dangerous on a hygienic level to survive etc you know so it's not really uh, a walk in the park well, I mean, that's the interesting thing right because we have you know the Ötzi from from Austria, this body that was found in in a glacier in the mountains, who's got tattoos, but we don't have a lot of uh, uh, literature outside of um, those Romans talking about the Brits and then the Brits talking about the Brits in in a medieval context uh, talking about tattooing. Um, we have some discussions in Italy. Religious discussions on whether or not it's okay. We know, of course, that the Crusaders were tattooing. Having the Jerusalem cross tattooed somewhere was a typical thing. Also, if you went on pilgrimage. And then we have, uh, I think it's around, what is it, the 10, 10 1100s, something around that time. I think that there's also a, no, it's, it's a little before then. So it's a little before the big crusades, which happened in the 1100s, right? Mm -hmm. That's when... Yeah. We get beat down by Salahdin and all of the oh, yeah. all of that stuff, right? <laughs> um, but just before then, we have a um, if if I remember correctly, we have a backlash against tattooing um, in 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 um, in the Christian world, um, led by the Pope. Uh, going back to the four hundreds, we see medical books actually talking about removal of tattoos mm -hmm. um, in in the Eastern Greek area. Uh, and and so, so there, uh, here and there in in European culture in general, there's a blurb about tattooing uh, once in a while, but it's not a consistent thing that people really care that much about. And and so so, so yeah, you, you can always question: Does that mean that it was fairly common? Does it mean that it was not common at all? Um, what what is really the status of all of this? When it comes to the saga literature, we we have people who are. Uh, described as having darkened skin, and there are different, um, there are different words and different di ways of describing that are, that that are being used for that. Uh, one thing that uh, that 
that stuck with me is is the description helia skin, so basically hell skin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as we know from from Snorri's uh, description of of the goddess of the underworld, hell, she has uh, one one part of her face or her body is dark, and the other one is light. Um, and that could be something that 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 a description of uh, of some kind of like darkening of the skin it could also be a lot of other things it could be you know a natural occurring um uh, moles or or whatever and we could also be dealing with people who are actually from a place where they have darker skin so there there are plenty of like other ways of interpreting this but it is interesting to see that um when in Finno Jonsson's I believe it is in his uh, collection of uh of physical attributes, like uh, words that are that are being used for physical attributes, um, uh, words or phrases that talk about darker skin are actually there's there's a lot of them. There's a, there's a lot of different versions of that, and then you know it comes down to do you do you want to talk about uh, racial diversity in Scandinavia at the time, or do you want to talk about uh, uh, possibilities of like coloring skin, or or what are we dealing with here, right? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to tell. Yes, exactly. I mean, I can't, I'm not really the the best person to talk about this. This, this. I mean, like, there's much more. I mean, it's like, uh, maybe, yeah, we should take that up in an, in another uh, context because I think I could give give you much more in different departments where I've researched much more. I mean, it's like I've got my own conviction, but it's an ongoing. Uh, an ongoing discussion in that department, but like there is, a, there is a lot that actually, that we, that I was surprised to actually discover in the, you know, in the research within the ornaments. There is a lot of uh, of conceptual ideas. For example, one thing that the norm, that the the modern Nordic designers have, uh, that that, uh, our conception towards Viking art is that you have the earnest style, so that the graceful, the grace uh, of the curved lines, uh, etc. The, the Tolkien elves, Ex- right? Exactly, That's what it is. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Spe- specifically like that. I mean, if you if you talk in those terms, because that's what they come from originally. And um, but in the um, and then there is this other part of the Nordic modern design that has you know that tries to depict this very harsh, very masculine kind of shapes you know very sharp at the edges very angular but what i've discovered is that in its height of development viking art actually was a, a, a precisely a balance of these two things if you look at viking you know in the uh, especially mammon style is even even better in the later uh, yelling style when yelling style becomes very uh, that uh, yeah takes up its uh, core character. Uh, you uh, the ornaments are made out of ribbons, and these ribbons have two lines. So you have an outer line that uh, makes a larger curve, and sometimes it has to you know twist back very abruptly, 
And what they did is that they cut it into an angular form. So you get like a, an angular form on the outside and a, and a, and a rounded form on the inside, mm, which, yeah. which alternate each other and make these the, this uh, connections. So what, what they were looking for was more of a balance between this uh, more elvish or more graceful, more feminine side and this, you know, more angular, more masculine form. They actually put them together. Again, uh, it looks as if they, they were trying to express the idea that their survival depended on the, the use of all resources they had. Yeah. You know, yeah. so the masculine, the feminine, the, you know, the different part. That, that, that's a really interesting interpretation. I, I, I like that because uh, I feel that we see that in, in, in plenty of other contexts too in in you know uh, context of uh, both Viking Age Scandinavia medieval Scandinavia and and relatively recent Scandinavia too <laughs> you know this there's, there's a you know it, it uh, before we uh, we invented a lot of technology that could uh, help us produce food uh, uh, in a in, in a much easier way so to speak um, you know it it, it was it was difficult to to survive in in the Scandinavian landscape. There's a reason that uh, like millions of Scandinavians migrated over here to nice farmland in Wisconsin and other places in the U.S. Right, <laughs> about you know these 150 something years ago. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, that, that that makes a lot of sense to me that they would be looking at looking for balance and looking for utilizing resources. In, on sort of like a broad scale where nothing gets gets lost. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But there's a lot of these uh, elements in uh, in the ornaments that, uh, you know, it's like there, there is also, uh, you know, as I said, there is a development uh, towards a more aesthetic uh, kind of art from a more symbolic kind of art where, as they meet Christianity. But in earnest style, for example, that was something that, uh, my uh, so yeah the 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 rune carver I was telling you about Eric Sundquist um, um, was telling me about Ernest style, but he doesn't like that much for a specific reason because it's lost all the the characteristics of the complex knotwork of uh, both Ringerike and and uh, Mammon before that. But he actually explained that there is a technical uh, choice in there. There is a, the technical and an economic choice in that. Uh, Ernest style uh, stones were uh, a lot. You know, they, they, there was a, a great demand in these stones. In, in especially in Sweden, they are like, I mean, I, I went through a database the other day that, you know, showed some, some 3,000 pieces. And there were some specific uh, artists that actually, uh, or rune carvers that actually signed these stones that made some 60 pieces. Mm. 
uh, and no matter how many uh, people you have with you to do the work by hand, 60 pieces is a lot of stuff to de design. And what Eric said, like, if you, if you need to design something that large and you need to do it in such a large quantity, you need to change the style. The whole, uh, if, you, if you look at Viking art, it actually, uh, what you, um, it, it has a specific uh, structure in the knotwork, for example. The knotwork uh, reflects very clearly the style. You know, uh, what, uh, what academics uh, normally look into uh, specifically are the endings of the tendrils and the heads of the animals, if there is, etc., etc. But the knotwork is much more characteristic in a way. Um, and the knotwork changed from, Mam from Ringerike's, well, actually from Mammon's style after, into Ringerike, it got, uh, it got more... Um, streamlined it, it became more standard as a sort of um of a mannerism of uh, you know it became less organic more aesthetic more standardized and from ringerica to earnest because of the uh, great increase in demand they actually needed to uh, to change the structure of it like the the structure of moment of the classic height height of Viking art is is based on uh, pretzel shapes that that are all connected in a sort of chain in many directions in a sort of very organic pattern uh, that was that takes a gigantic amount of time to put together. If you do it right, it'll take you. I don't know, 15 minutes to make a large design in the, in the shapes of the beasts, and it'll take you three days straight to make the knotwork that connects it. Mm. That's the proportion you're looking at in a Mammon style. They couldn't do that in that kind of amount with, uh, in Ernest style. So they developed a change in the, in the design. So the knotwork became uh, based on an eight shape so that uh, it, it made it easier to actually um, to yeah to construct it was much less articulate in its structure it lost all its bits and pieces the the clam shapes the the all the varieties were cut out and they started, you know, like, uh, filling very large areas with very simple shapes. So it was an economic decision, but it was made in a very graceful way. So they were very, very, you know, it was a very clever uh, change because it makes it very nice, but it's an economic choice. Right. That's that's really interesting. It's almost like a, a change into mass production because it becomes so popular. Even you know all them years ago, it's it, you still get that kind of like you say an economic reason behind a, a change to the art style. Absolutely. Okay, so we're we're probably just touching about two hours now. Um, I think I know. It's, it, I mean, it's not a problem. I think if we if we wrap this one up, I mean. 
I, I'm not. I think I'm sure I speak for for Mateus as well that we would be more than happy to have you you back on Luciano in the in the future. And oh, to, absolutely, yes. And to you know to 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 really go into some more of these ideas because I've got a lot of questions that I still have, and I'm sure once people have listened to this episode, that they're going to have a lot of questions. I mean, I've never seen Mateus sit there so concentrated, so <laughs> you know, so so locked into to what's to what I guess has been there. Been saying before, it's it's really been fascinating. Thank you. It's been fun, absolutely, and I'm I would be really happy to come back and uh, and try to you know explain what I've discovered. Definitely. Yeah, no, I I think it's so fascinating. Um, I I love hearing about the practical side of uh of 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 the art uh, from the Viking Age because uh, you know as an academic I uh, I I haven't you know the, 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 we it's getting better in sort of the uh the field of academia like talking with uh with with uh, people who apply it in uh in a in a practical sense and work with their hands on this material but but there's still so much uh so much that could be done to uh, to cross over between academia and experimental archaeology and um uh, you know the the practical application of 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 making art, I would I would actually yeah. like to um, to I'm I've been playing with the idea for quite a long time now to actually put together academics and uh, and artists that actually you know like try to revive the original languages and actually do some uh, workshops and symposia and make make the you know put the academics in the problems. Of design, so that they understand what they're looking at. You know, it's like that would be a really super cool. That would be a great thing to do. <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking to you for two hours, I'm sure that we could speak to you for another six, if not more. You know, so I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to doing another episode in the in the future definitely, and uh, getting into some some more bits and pieces. You you obviously really know know your stuff. You've done hours of you know hours and hours, if not days of research. It's it's really you know really fascinating, really interesting to listen to you speak. Thank you, thank you very much. It's fun uh, finally to actually get out a lot of what I'm because. I never, I don't often get to, you know, to to to, to tell the whole background of what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, is there anything that you're you're working on, or anywhere that you can direct people to to look at what you're doing, to check out the work, that kind of thing? Websites, Instagrams, anything? Just you know, because when people listen to this, hopefully they're going to want to. To follow up and see. Well, more. I mean, there, there are there are a few projects going on at the moment. I mean, if I continue doing the experimental work on, uh, you know, on the uh, on my research, and I show what I what I do on for both uh, Instagram and Facebook on the Children of Ash uh, pages. Uh, but uh, we're trying to to work on the, on parallel. Uh, projects as well that you know especially for artists that uh, that would like to start understanding how to actually make uh, well this languages come alive again because uh, it's really it's really hard if you don't have a you know it's 
I've I've been through this this journey for a very uh, yeah very long time, and speaking with uh, with artists, I I figured and I've noticed that I can cut their toil by years. I think I think it's yeah I think it's having that starting point. And people knowing where to start and what to look at and, and looking at, I guess there's going to be, this is one thing I, I, on the next one I want to ask you about is, is whether there's different rules and, and the way, you know, to work things, that, that kind of thing. I want to get into that. And I know certainly as soon as we, we finish this, I'm going to be sending you messages asking you of ways that you can help me learn. So I'm sure there is, there's avenues out there for you to, you know, put things together that would just help so many people learn and understand because that really is is lacking i'm trying to uh, put together a uh, patreon page in which we can uh, i would like to 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 construct it so that there is a uh, an academic point of view a post let's say in which uh, some aspects of viking art are explained and and shown and uh, connected with a, uh, a tutorial a very practical uh, video in which you you know you ex- you get explanations on how to do certain things where to find solutions for authentic uh, stylistic problems etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean i i think there's a huge gap in the market for that and i think if you if you did do a patreon page like you're saying especially someone with your knowledge and expertise it would you know, it would do really well. I'm sure Matthias probably agrees. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the idea of a uh, some kind of workshop uh, that brings um, artists and academics together would be absolutely fascinating. I'd definitely go. Absolutely, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, great. I was actually thinking of uh, you know, it's like I've been invited to go and do a sort of symposium in Minnesota. Uh, oh, really? Actually, at some point with this, uh, it, it, there is a sort of group called Viking, uh, oh, Viking Connection, Viking Alliance, I don't remember exactly. Uh, yeah. And they, Yeah, Vi- that Viking Alliance sounds familiar. Yeah, and they were, uh, yeah, were looking into, uh, yeah, getting me there for a symposium so that I could, you know, gather more people to actually you know, do a, a sort of theoretical part in a very practical uh, workshop to understand the lines and uh, the structure and everything. Cool. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm sure if we, we'd look at doing something through Horns of Odin and trying to put something together and, and maybe if Matthias was over this, we'd put together a workshop where we could get together and, and show people because it really is something that, I know when I've been trying to look, you know, look at different ways to learn that it's just, especially if you don't have an artistic background knowing where to start and you look at these complex designs and it's just almost too overwhelming that you kind of just instantly give up before you've even started because but there's actually uh, there's one qq about this which is very interesting we'll be uh, i hope we'll be talking about it next time i'll I'll just uh, mention it shortly that they had especially in runestone in the viking age a sort of shorthand system okay so Good, good artists and very, very, you know, all the the way down to very, very basic artists that were not really so skilled had a sort of understanding 
uh, of what specific lines were important to, to get the message across. So uh, that can be actually done modernly speaking as well. So, th so that's no problem. It's not a question of being, you know, a Michelangelo necessarily to actually get, get to the point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's definitely do this. Let's definitely do this again. I mean, I think we had a few days to to get ready for this one. It was kind of an off the cuff, off the cuff moment. So with a little bit of planning, I think we really could, you know, put something together that would help a lot of people out. Um, like I say, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely be asking you a lot of questions when we definitely uh, when we get off this. So so thank you, thank you very much. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please just take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Leaving reviews really helps us grow the podcast and just allows people to find it easier in the search engine.